audio conversation with Brad Steiger, recorded Monday, June 20th, 2011. And just so you listeners know, I have been trying to get Brad Steiger on this podcast for well over a year. Um, I have tried not to be a pest, but I've sent him a handful of emails. Uh, Then I noticed a book was just about to be released. And uh, it was authored by him and his wife, Sherry Hansensteiger. And the title of the book is Real Aliens, Space Beings, and Creatures from Other Worlds. So when I got a hold of him and said I would like to do an interview specifically to help promote that book, he uh, said yes. I was super excited. Uh, the publisher sent me the book. I read the book. I will honestly say I read most of the book. Now, now a few of the chapters, I felt like I had uh, read a lot of that information before and heard it before, so I just skipped on to the next chapter. That said, it is a great big thick book with lots of information on the subject of uh the visitors the creatures the entities the things that get reported uh, by real people and it is cataloged very nicely uh, and by the end of it you're you're i feel you're a little bit overwhelmed by the monumental uh, amount of information in this book uh, that said I, I really liked the book and, and the book did something that i really respect it, it it's set up in a way that will be very user-friendly and very informative to someone who's who's new to the phenomena. Um, and then folks who are immersed in the phenomena, like myself, will be able to use this book um, as, a, as a really good reference point to look into the index and then dig out the, the key information that you're looking for. For instance, there is a really good chapter on aliens and the presidency that I didn't expect to be so interesting. And this is coming from an author who has been writing books and doing research into this subject, as well as ghosts and psychic phenomena in demonology, uh, that he's been doing this sort of research and writing since the 60s. So that's well over 40 years of doing this type of research and trying to catalog it and trying to bring some of the deeper truths of this subject to his readers. That said, it was a delightful interview. The only flaw... It was way too short. He only had an hour to spare, and um, I felt like I was just getting warmed up. Let me also add that Brad is a very skilled speaker, and that makes for a wonderful listening experience for you. Please enjoy. Brad, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It's quite an honor. Thank you. And Pleasure to be with you. Good, good. And I'm in my hand. I'm holding the book, A Real Aliens, Space Beings, and Creatures from Other Worlds, which just mm-hmm. came out. When it got mailed to me, I was surprised that it was a big, fat book. Uh, there is a lot of information <laughs> in here. Well, yes. We, we love to put out big, fat books with a lot of information. And uh, that, that's one of the things that sort of struck me about this book, is that we live in a world where... Uh, there are skeptics, and people try to deny the very existence of such things. This book is crammed with one case study, one report after another, after another, after another. And the the actual just the weight of the book itself sort of, you know, should tell anyone that there's something going on. It certainly should, and the approach that we used is to, well. Let me preface that by saying that I think whether it's the paranormal and writing in the paranormal field, doing one of the ghost books, one of the other books in in that line, 
people are starting square one today. They see what's on television, maybe they read a book, and they say, wow, now I know all about this field. Well, looking at UFO books coming out, it's obvious that they've probably started their research somewhere around the turn of the century, and there's just a vast amount of information. And this book begins with the earliest example in each of the chapters, and then, as you've noted, Mike, proceeds methodically up to, well, when we finish the book, the uh, spring of 2010. So it's that recent, and yet it goes all the way back to either 1947 or the 1940s somewhere or the 1930s or the 18s somewhere and begins each segment of Aliens. And this isn't per se a book about UFOs, though they are intertwined. It is a book, as it says, about aliens, space beings and creatures from other worlds, as people have reported them, as people have recited them, and as people have claimed it as an integral part of their life experience. So we don't have any accounts that may be a little off the wall, although, you know, that's a subjective evaluation. Some people may say it's all off the wall. But in terms of honest, normal, whatever that means, serious-minded people who have had these experiences and reported them and given an account to the best of their ability that they were true and accurate and true to their own personal vision of their own integrity, these are the stories that stand out from the time that I began researching and Sherry began researching. I began, you know, I, I remember 1947. I remember Roswell. I got hooked at 11 years old, and I've been researching UFOs, collecting files until the time when I could go out and travel literally around the world investigating these this phenomena. You have to label it at this point a phenomena, an enigma, because no one knows for certain exactly what we're dealing with. I could not agree more. And um, I'm not sure how much you know about my own uh, set of experiences. Have, have I shared anything with you through the emails I sent? Very little, very okay. little. Okay, let me, uh, I'll just say the set of experiences I've had in my life uh, make this subject, um, it is not entertainment, um, and it is very deeply personal, and that is part of the reason I'm doing this, these audio shows as well as the writing that I'm posting online. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to ask me any questions, feel free to, but um, I will say that, you know, because we have a limited amount of time and a great big book to try to talk about, I would love to just keep a focus on, uh, on just three chapters, and those chapters okay. would be the contactees, the abductees, and the star people. Okay. I suppose many people consider that might be my expertise in that uh, after I wrote the first UFO book, my first UFO book, excuse me, Strangers from the Skies in 1966, that had uh, the advantage of timing. UFOs had been pretty dead 
in the early 60s. And now another cycle was moving around. So that when my book came out, UFOs were in the news again. They were in the newspapers. People were talking about them. There weren't talk shows, more than a handful, that would deal with any subject like this. But the book came out just when the great Michigan sightings were taking place, and that's where Dr. Hynek was quoted as saying, well, it's swamp gas, which he was told to do by the Air Force. And the book took off. It became a paperback bestseller in two weeks. I received then, from that time on, an extraordinary amount of mail from people who claimed UFO contact with UFO entities. Now, I knew all about, of course, the, the early contactees. And some of their claims were, were quite elaborately woven fantasies, so they seemed. Others seemed to be kind of um, expressions of religious experience. But now these were people claiming interaction with intelligences from whatever we call, we called them flying saucers in the, in the, in the 60s. Now it's UFOs. But the interesting thing is this is before Internet. This is before a great deal of television and programs and movies and so forth. This is before E.T. This is before Close Encounters. This is before the thousand talk shows and groups that there are now. And I would travel around the country. I would talk to a woman in Ohio. This is Mike chiming in during the editing process. I apologize. Uh, during the recording, Skype created some static for just maybe 10 seconds or so, and uh, Brad was sharing an experience where he was talking with a woman in Canada and comparing that to a woman in Ohio. They both shared almost identical experiences, and, um, and that just proved to him that something very curious was going on. Sorry about all this. We'll pick up uh, right here where the audio gets clear again. They did not know each other. This was a material that was not available in the press. So I had to ask myself, what line of communication is being established here? It's certainly not an orthodox one. And from that time on until, well, I tried to cover a broad base, but I really was intrigued by the contactee and have written a, a number of books strictly on that, such as Revelation of the Divine Fire, which is both the contactee throughout all the centuries, because I think it's the same phenomena. The prophets in the Bible and the New Age prophets, some people are offended when you dignify them with the same breath. But in a sense, we're always having individuals who are looking to the skies, who are being contacted, who are receiving information. And it's been an ongoing communications probably since before we stood upright as a species. Yeah, I agree. We're very much on the same page. One of the things that's happening, now you talked about the, the era from you know, the, the 1960s and how much has changed. Uh, one thing that has changed with the advent of the Internet is that people are coming forward with their own stories and sharing them online. They're doing it without 
um, an editor they're doing it without a publishing company they're just a few mouse clicks away from starting their own website um, mm -hmm. and you get some some uh, low quality stuff out there but I would also say I'm shocked at the the reports that I'm finding so easily online instead of someone writing a book and saying 10 years ago I woke up in the morning with this odd scar you can you know check a website and someone will say this morning I woke up with an odd scar and and it is it's creating perhaps an acceleration of the acceptance in in our day-to-day -day culture that this tool the internet yes it the internet makes it so very difficult for researchers such as myself it seemed, and I'm not making a judgmental statement here, I'm speaking strictly from the viewpoint of the researchers, such as Sherry and myself, when, when there wasn't an Internet, when there wasn't television programming, reality-type shows where people are exploring this, now you have to ask how much individuals are being influenced by others how many wannabes there are how many want to have that experience and their imagination takes over in a sense it has become much more difficult to research the purity of the experience now as far as acceptance and public acceptance I mean I couldn't go on a radio program in the 60s without the man then it was always a man, <laughs> almost always, saying, just before we went on the air, and of course in those days we didn't do it as we're doing it by a phone. You had to go to the studio just before we're going on, and I'm already tired from the trip there, saying, boy, Steiger, I'm going to rip you apart, you know, this nonsense. And I'd just say, go for it, you know. <laughs> I'm presenting, I'm not a missionary, I'm presenting research. Whether you accept it or not is completely up to you. And I have no invested interest in, in whether I'm not trying to convert anyone, and I never have. Simply present the material. This is for individual evaluation. So it's a mixed blessing now. People are accepting it more. People have the wonderful aspect of the Internet where they can exchange their ideas instantly. But from a research standpoint, it does make it a little difficult to sift the wheat from the shaft. Do you understand what I'm saying? Not trying to offend anyone. Oh, I agree completely. There is, and I'll, I'll say it straight up, there's some crappy stuff out there that I find very, very hard to believe. At the same time, uh, and I'll just use myself as an example, um, the act of coming forward with, with my own personal stories has been incredibly rewarding. Uh, what happens to me is that you know then people will respond and I will get very very heartfelt letters um, directed mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. that uh, that I did not expect when I when I entered this realm, you know. And, and oh, and, and and I'll pick up on that, Mike. I mean, it's the same with us. We we just receive an enormous amount of email from people who have no reason to share these experiences other than they're saying ah. I found someone who might listen to me. I found someone who might, quote, unquote, believe in my story, or at least accept it without laughing. So from that aspect, as I, aspect, I say it is a double-edged sword because you have so many people, earnest, sincere people, now sending their emails 
we, you know, we don't have to go and travel around the world anymore because the emails are available and they're coming from every country sharing their experiences. I only raised the point that, you know, it does become more difficult and kind of sifting through and saying, well, you know, that was just on such and such a program last week. And, uh, you know, this seems a little like it's um, a variation on so-and-so's theme. But then, in a sense, the researchers always had to do that. I mean, that's the challenge of research is, is trying to differentiate between the uh, fantasy-prone individual and the person who had a genuine experience. By the same token, we know, and we've discounted decades ago, the canard that it's only people of low intelligence who have these sightings. It's only the fantasy-prone who have these sightings because academics have studied UFO contactees, UFO abductees, and they have announced their findings that these are not people of lower intelligence. If anything, they are people of higher intelligence. These are not fantasy-prone individuals. If anything, these individuals who had these experiences were very matter-of-fact and very objective rationalists before they had the experience. And that has been my... Uh you know what I've and I and I it's very interesting I, I'm very it's hard for me to call myself a researcher I don't know what I am um, you know it feels like someone asked me that one time and said oh what do you do and I'm like well I guess I'm doing research and I was at a conference and that was my reply when you know standing mm -hmm. there in line for the drinking fountain and and I and uh, struck up a conversation <laughs> and and when he heard I was doing research he was like oh what are you researching and then I had to think I was like oh gosh what am I researching and the answer was I guess I'm researching myself and That's a good answer, though. It is, but it, 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 it makes it, it's, so it's very, uh, um, how to say it, when, it, when you're researching yourself, it comes out at, at, like I am not objective. Um, you know, I, obviously I'm objective yeah, to a point, and, I know, and, and, I I know. Am, and I am skeptical. I am skeptical of a lot of this, and the one thing that I'm most skeptical of is my own set of memories. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hey, here... Well, that's good. Uh, I think so. I mean, I, have, I don't know any other way to proceed, so yeah, it seems good. There's, there's a couple, there's, is there, do you have a good term for someone who claims the UFO contact experience? I mean, there's the term contactee, there's the term abductee, there's the term experiencer. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, we freely use them interchangeably uh, because you have to use the term that most people understand. So we're not interested in coming up with new terms, but, you know, using those that people were... What we're interested in is, you know, finding, if at all possible, a common denominator. You know, we've put out this questionnaire now for decades, and we stress that this is information gathering, and that's the, you're probably familiar with it, the Star People questionnaire that we put out, or now we've expanded it to, it's the Steiger questionnaire of UFO, uh, paranormal and uh, a mystical experience questionnaire, so that because it really includes all of these, truly it does. And that's been going out now since the 60s, since 1967. So we're acquiring a lot of data, but people sometimes send in their questionnaire and they're expecting a grade, you know, am I a contactee, am I an abductee, am I a star person? That's not the purpose. It, it's 
and, and we explain, and, and most people understand, that we're gathering data, trying to find some commonality. And we do find commonalities, but what they mean, uh, we're not certain at this point. So we're still very much collecting data. Hey, oh, I just got to have to ask, can you give me an example, something that struck you as interesting in these commonalities? Well, the the commonalities for, for example, the, the star people, and these are only generalities now, but we have found that in a large number, the overwhelming number of cases, that the first contact occurs when they're maybe very young, probably five, six years old. Then there seems to be what we call an activating incident that occurs around 11, when they actually feel they've come in contact with an angel, a fairy, uh, an elf, a euphonaut from another world, a, a mystical being, or a religious figure that says they have something important to do. And then probably around in their late teens, there's a very dramatic incident, such as, uh, you know, it can be, uh, well, somewhere along the line then, and maybe it's right around that 11, 12, 13, uh, there's either an accident, a sickness that causes them to withdraw for a while, uh, divorce of their parents, something then that causes them for a time to withdraw and begin to utilize kind of their inner ability. I hesitate to call psychic ability, but their, their inner resources. And then, of course, we have several other things in the list which we're trying to. We've noticed um, lower than normal blood pressure for some people. Uh, there are... Um, sometimes unusual, um, or I shouldn't say unusual, because anomalies implies. But anomalous, um, it's, it's really tough, Mike, because we're, we're really gathering data. Whenever I announce certain things, then I'm in danger of getting feedback of people. They're certain to check certain things. So you understand the difficulty of, of speaking about this. We don't want to influence you know, the research that we're getting, but... Uh, we do have, in the book, we have the analysis of, this, of the questionnaires that we have put together for these many decades now. The analysis of the present, if we, we can't even call it analysis, let's say a progress report of the percentages of the various anomalies and uh, individual experiences is in the real aliens, and we also have it on our website, www.bradandsherry.com, for people to, and that, that's where they can find the questionnaire, and they can fill it out and send it to us. Just so you know, I did fill out one of those questionnaires a while back, and, um, you know, so I don't know quite what to make of it. Um, as far as my own set of experiences, it has been very confusing for me. The, the thing that I, I'm impressed with is that um, you're looking into the I, how to say this, there are very dogmatic and seemingly open-minded, let me put it that way, researchers out there who would not entertain the star people concept at all. Um, you know, some nuts and bolts crowd that would basically, uh, you know, would cringe at the thought of people saying that they were here for an important purpose. Um, right. And that sense of mission. And that grew out of the study of the contactee. And also... 
honesty, you know, that the the questionnaire began uh, from my psychical research trying to devise a pattern profile of the people who claimed psychic ability. And then during hypnosis, in which, again, <laughs> I was seeking evidence of reincarnation, past lives, and then, and this is back in the 60s, people began talking about coming here as a, a, a being of light, coming here, um, seeing themselves being born, but knowing they came from elsewhere. And I thought, what in the world is going on here? And, and again, there weren't movies, there weren't television, the, uh, the, the, the series that would inspire this. And that's when it be began shifting over to examining what this phenomena is. And saying, quite frankly, is it because people recognize that, and I suppose it's always doomsday for somebody, uh, you know, there will always be the doomsday people. This is not doomsday. This is people who feel they've come here for a purpose. So I can't really see that there's anything wrong with feeling you have a purpose to do good on this planet. You have a mission to help people. You have a uh, overall uh, schemata in your life that you're going to try to help people wherever you can. And so many of these people from the very beginning were doctors and nurses, social workers. Uh, nurses were, are, have always been kind of the... Uh, leading percentage in, in this, and I, I find that very interesting, but it's the helpers. It's the helpers in our society. And about that same time, then, I heard from a, an acquaintance who was a physicist at NASA, and he had begun doing research on that, uh, finding the helpers in society. And, and, of course, they are physicists, and they are military officers, and they are policemen. So all of these categories of the helpers in our society, teachers and preachers, the helpers have been the overwhelming number of people who have responded to this questionnaire. This is so fascinating. Now, the implication is that these star people, and I'll just use the term star people, that there could be many more of them walking among us right now without them even knowing it. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to qualify, and, and Mike, and, and this is where people at the very beginning got turned off. Uh, some people, I know I'd, I'd even go on television shows and say, now you feel you're from another world. You're from a strange place. And I'd say, well, I'm from Iowa. You know, <laughs> if you consider that. And then they'd get upset because never have Sherry and I said this. But some people, I mean, I'll, I'll be frank, uh, we've seen pictures of star people, churches in Denmark, and, and people have asked if they can set up star, but that's not what we're talking about. It's not people who claim they've come from another world. It's people who have a consciousness or an awareness that they, and you know, we're all star stuff. We're all star stuff. And more and more scientists are saying, you know, is that our very beginning came from, you know, microbes from some faraway star. So we're all star stuff. And we might all have that genetic memory 
of moving through the stars, moving through the skies. That might be, we don't, we don't know. I mean, every cell, there seems to be cellular memory in every cell within our body. So we don't know how much is genetic memory, but it's not people saying they've come from outer space. It's not people saying they're aliens who walk among us. Now, that's a whole other question. There may very well be aliens who walk among us. But that's not who the star people are. Yes, oh, and I, and I got that from the text. And, um, and that, that fascinates me because that has been one of the challenging things for me as I enter this arena and do this sort of research is that um, initially I was, I was sort of, uh, you know, I had a knee-jerk reaction where I was, was sort of repelled by by the claims of the folks who said that they had some sort of contact experience that was a loving communion with benevolent space beings and mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and that they were here for a purpose. Oftentimes, when they say they're here for a purpose, that is followed up in the next breath by "but I don't know what that purpose is." And exactly. And one of the things I realized it that. In a way, these people are just using vocabulary words that I, I find challenging. And, and someone else could tell me the exact same story, use a, just a few slight variations in the words that they choose, and, and I, would, you know, I, would, I would drink that story in, in a way. That's the challenge, isn't it? Uh, we, for a time, uh, conducted seminars because the, the, the big thing that that came to us were people exactly as you've described them, who they knew they had a mission, they knew they were supposed to do something. What was it? So we did do seminars in just in a general way, but using creative visualizations, guided visualizations, and so forth, helping people. And many people then did get a glimpse of what they thought they were supposed to do. Now, the difficulty of that was people then truly wanting to make of Sherry and myself much more than we've ever claimed to be or ever wanted to be. We have never had the desire to become spiritual leaders. We've never had the desire to form a church. And there was a great deal of pressure. And from... Uh, from some very thoughtful people who wanted us, you know, to put out a, a regular newsletter, to have regular meetings, to have gatherings. And we just saw this leading to a way, you know, that we found dangerous. I mean, we we don't want to, we never wanted to. We're researchers. We're researchers. We're not spiritual leaders. And that, that became the danger. So we've, we've withdrawn from, from doing that type of public outreach at this point, and we're strictly limiting it to research aspect and declaring once again, that is our primum mobilium. We are researchers, and we have information that we share. It's exciting to us. It's meaningful to us. It's purposeful to us, and we hope others will find it to be likewise helpful. Now, I have listened to you on other audio interviews. I have a few of your books on my shelf, and both you and your wife, Sherry, have had near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. This I find extremely interesting, and I'll follow that up and you'll see where I'm going with this. What do you see as the role of like the shaman in our present-day society? Well, here again, you've touched on a very personal matter for us. Uh, you are probably aware of the, the number of books that we have done on shamanism, that we've done on uh, Native American. Uh, we have both studied with very highly spiritual shamans, and we, we see the role maybe of some of the star people as kind of shaman in, in their own right of, of helping in that regard. It's, it's a way that is um, free of dogma. It recognizes, you know, the, the spirit within everyone and everything. And when you look into the eyes of your brother and sister, you're looking into your own, and we, are, we have a oneness that we have an opportunity and a privilege to serve. And so I think shamanism is uh, very important. And I think uh, you're right, because uh, the near-death experience cannot be ruled out as something that was very influential in both of our lives. And I, I think that, of course, that's also the initiative the step of initiation in shamanism where you undergo a pseudo-death, where in our cases, you know, we, we went into uh, a death that was pronounced for a time by medical... Uh, we were not lying in, in uh, a sweat lodge having a death experience. You know, we were truly having a death experience, which I guess that really intensifies your sense of mission, too. You feel since you've come back... Uh, you, you are altered, even though it occurred to us at very young ages. And then again, um, you know, when when Sherry was older. So these are experiences that certainly uh, cause you to evaluate your life path in a very serious way and begin to examine it. You know, what am I really supposed to do? Let's stop wasting time with the uh, audiophora and the peripheral of life. Let's really get down to what it's really all about. And that's sharing awareness. For us, that's sharing awareness with the people who uh, will respond to the particular works and the books that, that we uh, publish. Yeah, I always think of the, um, I picture this whole phenomena in a way, the way it interacts with the contactee, the abductee, or the experiencer, as a sort of initiation process. And, uh, and uh, that's, that's just one way to look at it. And, and it certainly... No, that's, well, I agree with you. I agree with you. I didn't mean to shout at you, Mike. But it's so few people who seem to get that and pointed that out in uh, various works and articles and so forth. That this is really these are individual mystical experiences, whether they are extraterrestrial or multidimensional, or whether they come from someone's idea of a uh, uh, an ecclesiastical source. Uh, these are individual mystical experiences in the contactee. I mean, uh, I love to hear you say that we view as an initiation experience. Yeah, and because from my direct experience. Um, th there's something going on that is more profound than simply, you know, a little scientist in a metal spaceship, you know, flying here to collect data. 
uh, right. you know, my sense is that there's something much more profound. There's a, there's another researcher. His name is Christopher Knowles, and he was you know sort of equally perplexed with these problems. And he sort of uses he started using the term the elusive companion hypothesis, which I really like. It sort of implies that the companion, something is going on that is that is on a parallel track to us, that is interacting with us in a way that uh, seems different than the way that we would simply interact with the grizzly bears in Yellowstone by, by flying in on a helicopter and darting them and then doing a, a, a little medical examination, perhaps coming back later and examining that same bear one more time. Um, you know, that's a very easy conclusion to come to, but um, something is going going on that's much more... Um, you know, it's there's it's, it seems to be a companion phenomena to to the human species rather than and I will use the term than an alien phenomena, if that makes sense. We we really do not use the term alien. We use the term the other when we are speaking amongst ourselves. Uh, but alien, of course, is what will communicate, and, and we're always looking for words that instantly communicate, right? So alien translates for the cover of the book. If we put real others, space beings, <laughs> creatures, you see people say, what? But companion is a good word. The other. Uh, others have used. Uh, oh, Whitley Strieber uses the visitors. Throughout history. Pardon me? Oh, Whitley Strieber uses the term the visitors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, we've used that as well. But the, the other, because it's, it's the one thing that, well, the overriding thing that Sherry and I emphasize is that this phenomenon, whatever it truly is, shrouded in mystery at this time, but it influences every one of us in every aspect of our lives. Now, that upsets people, some people, that blows other people away, because they're saying, no, no, this is something, you know, it doesn't involve me. Uh, this is something that an experience, someone saw a light in the sky, or some uh, kind of off-the-wall guy says that he actually made contact with him. We're saying put all that aside and look at those as great pieces in a big cosmic jigsaw puzzle, but know this well that this phenomenon, this enigma, affects every single one of us in some way. Perhaps we perceive it, perhaps we don't, perhaps we're aware of it, perhaps we're not. Maybe we don't dare, some of us don't dare to perceive that. But it does affect us. This, it's an overall, it's the great mystery, as the Native Americans termed their general, whether it was, you know, Manitou or Wakantanka, but the best description I think that they used was simply calling this the great mystery. And that's what we're involved in, in our very essence, in our very spiritual being. That's what we're involved in. It's a great pageant play. It's a great panorama that belong long before we were sentient beings. The reports that get told by experiencers and and people who claim the contact experience and I would I, and star people and and one of the things that I have found almost universal when I talk to folks who claim this experience is 
enhanced psychic ability. Mm-hmm. Goes with it. Yeah, yeah, that to me says says something is interacting with us that is more powerful than, you know, simply um, just just a visitation by some you know, mysterious scientists. And uh, mm-hmm. along with that comes, uh, oh, and, and your book confirmed a lot of what I had been seeing, so I'm sort of repeating what's in your book, but, you know, a sense of mission, and then people will actually begin to channel. That is something that, that I've seen as a very true pattern, but uh, mm-hmm. very few researchers will touch that. Right, right, right. We have in the book one of the case studies is of Janet Russell, who is one of the uh, most accurate psychics. I, I have been privileged when I began working in the paranormal field of of having examined and spent time with some of the greatest mediums, physical mediums of the last generation. They've all gone now with few exceptions. But the new people who have emerged from UFO contact experiences, whatever they were, she was a, a young mother. She was a, uh, she had a mail route <laughs> in, in New York on Long Island. So she was a, she was a postal worker, a young mother, and she it was time to her for her to go to her doctor for a checkup before the birth, and it took her a missing hour. Where did she go? What happened to her? Well, it must be the time, but she saw everything, and the doctor, luckily, you know, big city, uh, the clinic stayed open a little later than maybe some, some of us who live in smaller areas. So she was still able to make her appointment, but, you know, she was an hour late. Well, how could she explain it? I don't know. I went right on to my usual route, but, you know, there was something that happened. I looked up in the sky. Well, it wasn't until years later when she is the leading psychic in her area, or one of them. I mean, one of the outstanding psychics. And then she began to remember, and we have her experience in the book where she was taken aboard a craft. Now, this is, this is the imagery that is used. Are these really craft? Are they really? Well, we understand vehicles that fly now, don't we? Maybe centuries ago, we wouldn't understand that, but we would understand going to fairyland, or we would understand going to a mystical place, to a, a, a simulation of a Garden of Eden, some idealistic place, and be given information and being examined in some way. So wherever she went, she was examined by a number of people, entities, excuse me, beings, perhaps that's better, and she was given these enormous, uh, powerful psychic experiences, and she's been on television and United Kingdom and several United States, and, and she's a wonderful, giving, kind person. And she shares this extraordinary gift because that's her mission, now to share with this type of soul reach where she can help people. Uh, She gives comfort and aid to people every week by the dozens. And is she still alive? Yes, yes. Oh, good, good. That's great to know. She's very much alive. And uh, 
we have information about her in the alien book. I hope it got in. Yep, I just, I just found it. I rate, just looked it up while we were talking. It's on page 53. Yeah. And uh, she can be contacted. People can Google her. Uh, she has a television show, a radio show, and as I say, she does uh, guest experiences, uh, uh, guest appearances of her experiences. I'll be doing one with her in just a couple weeks. So we stay in touch all the time. She's extraordinary, you know, with a haunting that we're involved with. I just sent her uh, a penny that materialized, and the person sent it. She was able to touch that penny, describe the house exactly, describe the phenomena, describe what's going on. Now, this is a woman who walked a postal beat, a mother, and on her way to her doctor, went somewhere, received this blessing, received this gift, and received a mission to help others with her spiritual gifts. Hey, here's a question, um, and this has less to do with the topic of the book and, and more concerning my own research. What have you? What is your sense about owls? Well, I have one sitting beside me on my desk. <laughs> See, here again, we can't get tied up in saying, you know, they're a sign of evil, they're a sign... Um, Again, in the shamanistic tradition, the Native American tradition, uh, the, the owl is very meaningful, and uh, I have one sitting right on my desk as we are speaking now. I, I've seen things that people print, you know, about the animal this, the animal that. Um, I, I think we have to recognize the oneness of all life, and that uh, all life is expression of the great mystery. And putting negative connotations on animals, the four-legged, the winged, those that swim in the sea and those that crawl on land, I think does a disservice to both humans and our brothers and sisters. Yes, and the reason I ask that is I ask that of pretty much everyone I talk to uh, on in this, this audio series that I've been doing. And, and I say that be, out of personal reasons because I have seen so many owls. I've actually talked to owl researchers and, and asked, you know, is this normal to see this many owls? And, and they, uh, you know, straight across the board say, no, no, this is not normal. And they, you know, they actually sort of treat me as if I'm lying. Like, you know, it's impossible for anyone to see that many owls. And I, I will add, I do live in a place with Depends a lot of owls. Depends where you live, I guess. Oh, and I live in a place with plenty of owls, so... And so do we. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, there's... I have sat in the, um, what would be like a UFO support group, and you sit in a circle, and it's a lot like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and I find these <laughs> meetings uh, very, very rewarding. Uh, it's, there's two, okay. But one of the things that is, is surprising to me is the, the divergence of people's reports, the divergence of people's experiences. Some people will claim interaction with loving, kind, benevolent uh, mm -hmm. space angels, while others will tell terrifying stories of being put through terrible ordeals at the hands of what amount to like evil doctors. You know, why yeah. is, why is the, the phenomena itself so polarizing? Well, I upset people when I say and answer that question, which has been asked many times. I think it's largely who you are is what you get. If your concept 
of alien life forms is based upon the beast that ate Detroit and some of the uh, frightening alien depictions, then that's probably how this intelligence will appear to you because it it reads you and sees that's how you regard alien life. If you're of a more positive nature, if you like cute little E.D., if you really, really like angels more than you like demons, that's probably you're going to see a benevolent guise of this intelligence. Now, we don't really know what the intelligence looks like. It's how it reveals itself to the individual. But the great challenge for us is discernment. And just because it looks like an angel, don't believe that he's got a nice shiny apple for you and a wonderful way of life. And just because he looked really ugly and grotesque and serpentine doesn't mean he's bad. We have to discern. We have to make our own evaluation. And that's part of the challenge of the great mystery of exploring and dealing with alien intelligence. We don't know what it really is, what it really wants, what it really looks like. We just know we're involved in some reality game with it. And they have a greater understanding of the rules and the parameters than we do. We have to learn and use our intelligence, our spiritual energy to try to cautiously approach this mystery and maintain a spiritual and physical balance at all times. Um, in the book, you talk about aliens and the U.S. presidency, and you tell mm -hmm. a story, um, and I would love to get your take on it, and I've heard this story in many guises, in many forms, mm -hmm. and uh, it's the uh, elusive story where President Eisenhower meets with aliens yeah. in an Air Force base in 1954. Uh, and part of the reason I want to get your take on it is because within the community of people who do the, I mean, the UFO research, you know, there are some people who will talk about that story as mm -hmm. just, you know, accepted fact. And right. uh, I find it a very interesting story, and I find mm -hmm. uh, it very entertaining when people, you know, write about it and talk about it. But, um, I, I, you know, for me, I have a hard time... Uh, knowing, you know, where that story lies on the little continuum of between fact and fiction. Excellent example, Mike. And uh, just briefly, I'll use the Philadelphia experiment to go side by side with that. But first, Eisenhower. Now, I heard that story, of course, back in the, you know, the very early days and uh, Mead Lane and, and so forth. And I included it in, in one of my early books. And in the alien book, by this time now, or I'm speaking of our present alien book, we have talked to people who, you know, and this is, this is part of the mystery, who claim to have been there. You know, a, a British uh, Air Force officer who claimed to be there and then told um, a member of, of, of their parliament who told us, who told somebody, who told this, and then a friend who claimed to have been a seaman 
from another country because he he is not he was not American at this time. He got his citizenship, but he claimed to just happen to see, happen to be there, happen to find out what was going on, and he saw Eisenhower there. Now the same thing happens with the Philadelphia experiment. We just when we completely write it off as fantasy. And I kind of got the whole thing going in 1967 when someone sent me uh, the papers, the, the Vero edition with Jimmy and, and all the uh, supposed aliens writing their notes. And I wrote an article in Saga magazine, and it just took off. And I got all kinds of mail from, yes, my son is still in an asylum, or yes, my father, we've never seen him since that experiment. There's just, I was just a little girl, and he's, we never saw him again, and on and on and on. And I'm thinking, good Lord. And then, of course, we have found out uh, through a very vigilant researcher, Robert Gorman, who happened to live in the same town that, Carlos Miguel Elendi was supposed to live in and talk to their family and saying, oh, that's Charlie, you know, he's, he's uh, that, that's our son, that's our brother, you know, he's always told these wild stories and so forth, and, and now it seems to be a hoax. But then Elendi, the Elendi, or, or Carl Allen, his, his um, birth name, uh, I have information that just before he died, someone sent me a transcript where he denied his claim that it was a hoax and it was real. So we still get mail. We still get email from people who swear that a loved one was involved with the Philadelphia experiment. And we still get email from people who know people who were there. And it, it's kind of become living urban legends of the UFO field. Uh, just when you think you've completely put it to rest, then someone else comes with a fabulous, I was there. Very much the same thing happens with Roswell. I mean, I, I will get a report, and, and or someone when I'm doing a radio show will call in and describe, and then I ask them to write, and they write this detailed account of how they were just a young boy at the time of the crash, and they saw Air Force, they saw military, they saw Army personnel chasing small beans across their backyard and dipped their garbage pail. They actually saw, I mean, and then I heard people on their dying deathbed told their daughter. It goes, these are self-perpetuating. People come up at lectures and want to talk to us, you know, just can we sit aside and then tell us they saw this, their father saw this, their uncle saw it, their grandfather saw it, their father, their cousin, their uncle was involved in the Philadelphia experiment. What do you do? What do you do? You just keep on trying to shift and sift the wheat from the chaff. Good. Hey, um... It's, we've been at it for an hour. Uh, let me just ask one final question. Okay. And um, here goes. Uh, so here's an experience that I've had, and I've talked to others who've had the same experience. You go to, let's say, a UFO conference, mm -hmm. 
and you sit in the audience and a researcher stands on a podium and, and delivers a lecture and they uh, they've written a book and their their information is tidy and it comes to a nice uh, you know simple tidy conclusion and it's all very interesting and uh, they seem serious and genuine and uh, later on at the conference you find that uh, researcher at the bar you sit next to him and you know after a glass of wine or so the you ask the question you know like well what do you really think is going on and they kind of look left and they look right and they and they give you a different answer than they gave you at the podium why are people i guess how to say this what is the you know what bigger picture is is lurking below the waterline that that we should keep our eyes open for well explain to me mike uh, what different answer did they give you well they will they will be up at the podium and they will tell a very tidy story that falls very much into the extraterrestrial hypothesis you know these are mm -hmm. aliens these are you know coming from other planet and we took soil samples and here's the burn marks in the lawn and 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 it's all gets very very scientific and then when you talk to them the researcher themselves will say things like you know my life has been plagued by synchronicities since this has started or they'll say um, mm -hmm. you know the piece of data that I left out is when the the person who had the uh, flying saucer land in their backyard for the next year their house was plagued by poltergeist experiences um, that type of information seems to be you know they seem to be too shy to add that yeah. to the data pool. Yeah. Now, isn't it interesting that that's the very subject matter that I focused on since the 60s? The I have focused on that aspect of the phenomena. And as you said earlier, some people don't like it. They don't want to involve this. See, I, I said after I really, I, I said the book came out traveling all over. I go here, I go there, I go every state, most of the Canadian provinces, I'm hearing these stories, but always there's that. And then, what happened in my house? The, I mean, it just, for weeks, doors opening and closing, voices talking, telephone, uh, I even unplugged it and it still rang and there were voices, but people didn't want to talk about that. Now, I had come from the field of psychical research. And I thought, good Lord, the UFO field, <laughs> it's really all the same. It's really just an extension. This is a great mystery. As I've said many times during this hour, this is a great mystery in which we are the unwilling or willing or unprepared participants. And that's why the approach that I've taken in my early books and that Sherry and I take in our present books is exploring this aspect of it because you can't leave it out. This may be the most integral part of it. The mark in the soil, the crop circles, that may just be attention-getting devices so that we start paying attention to the larger picture, what's really going on, how it's affecting the human species in general, overall, in an integral, undeniable way. And that's the part that most researchers don't want to talk about. And I will sum this all up by saying that is the stuff that I am most 
deeply interested in and the stuff that fascinates me you know more than any other aspect of the phenomena and i just and this has been great i want to thank you so much for this hour my pleasure mike good and i'm gonna just i, I want to ask this um i would love to um have you back at some point mm-hmm. when i started this podcast series and when i started my blog uh i the reason i started it and I am not mincing words here. It was forced. It is self-therapy. It is uh, uh, as a way to try to make sense of these mysteries that have somehow uh, intersected with my life. And I would love to talk to you about some of my more personal experiences. That would be very interesting. I feel a great rapport with you. I feel that you know what I've been trying to say for years and what Sherry and I are trying to say. We don't claim to have the final answers. We just have a whole lot of questions that we want people to think about. Yes, and I think that the questions, um, uh, by simply asking complicated questions and potentially unanswerable questions, I think it just mm-hmm. forces the individual and, and perhaps the collective, it forces, uh, I don't want to use the term a heightened evolution because that sounds so lofty, but it does, you know, it when you reach for the stars, you don't end up with a handful of mud. No, no, uh, you're exactly right. But then there are a whole lot of people who won't return your calls after you ask those questions. So, and I will say, and, that they, and you've experienced that, haven't you? Uh, in a way, in what I've what I've experienced mostly in, is has been, um, you know, since starting this this website, is that the people that uh, frequent my website, they're not many. You know, it's not a large number uh, compared to other, you know, paranormal sites that, that are a little more exploitative, in my opinion. Um, the people who frequent my site, uh, in my opinion, are the right people. So uh, that's mm-hmm. who I'm directing mm-hmm. this to, the people who are genuinely interested in, in That's great. And, and that's where we feel fortunate, because with the books, there's obviously, there are more people than, than us, Mike, out there, because, you know, that's been the themes and the topic of our books, and... They've always found an audience, maybe not the big screaming bestseller, but we have a steady audience that's uh, kept us afloat for these many years. They're, the people are out there, and they do respond. And we're getting more to listen every week, we hope. And I hope your pro- this program will reach those people. More and more of them will start listening to your approach our approach, what you're trying to say. And I fully expect that, um, you know, if I look in the crystal ball and, and look down the road, that uh, this approach will evolve and mutate and change and, and hopefully for the better. But mm-hmm. at this point, um, it's I'm being as honest as I can be and trying to ask the questions that, that uh, how to say it, that well up from my gut right. as opposed to that, you know, come from my intellect. But stay honest. You know, you've got to stay honest. You. That's one thing, whether, you know, it, it rewards and the great wealth that some authors who have entered this field and exploited and then moved on, you can't, you can't play that tune. You've got to play the tune that maybe not as many people are listening, but it's a, a tune and a dance that's part of the universe and the cosmos and truly will go on forever. Now, the people who elect to hear it, that may be fewer numbers, and maybe it's always been a process of separating the sheep from the goats. 
And when I entered this fray, um, I knew full well that, uh, you know, there's a snake pit side of it, and then there's a doughy-eyed believer side of it, and then there's the, you know, budding religion side of it. And, and the only way I could enter it, the only way that that actually made sense, um, you know, at a heart level, at a soul level, was to be as honest as I could be. I, there's some stories I haven't shared publicly just because they involve other people, and I just feel that would be unfair. Right. Um, but what, uh, you know, just to We would always forward, be open to hear them. We would always be open to hear them. Good. I would love to have, and I would, and I, and I will say this. I would love to hear Sherry's voice uh, if we have a chance to talk again. Uh, she would very much, as he said, perhaps in the fall, and then uh, she would be just delighted to come on. And and I know uh, with, with your with your energy and and your uh, honesty of purpose, I know she would find uh, a very enjoyable program to participate in. Wonderful. And just so you know, on the program notes that uh, accompany this podcast, this thing, I, I will include all the information as far as ordering the book. And um, once again, I just want to say there's there's a book just out, just recently published, called Real Aliens, Space Beings, and Creatures from Another World by Brad Steiger and Sherry Hansen Steiger. And I'm going to say this one more time. It is a great big thick book 370 pages and it covers a lot and uh, for me someone who's very much immersed in this subject much of the information I had heard before though I had uh, it's very very nicely cataloged here and this would be an excellent book to hand someone who was uh, trying to make sense of this uh, elusive phenomenon very good very good thank you so much well take care then we'll uh, talk in the future. Very good. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Oh, that was great. <laughs>